Welcome back to How AI Built This, um, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. As always, we're brought to you by Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment experts. Uh, today on the show, I'm welcoming back a guest uh, from the second ever episode of this show, um, Mr. Adam Schroker. Uh, so Adam is the newly appointed head of machine learning at a company called Origami, a software company helping energy firms to increase the value they get from anything that uses, stores or generates electricity. Today's episode, uh, today's episode we're going to focus on how to stand out in the crowd um, when it comes to working in data. Adam's had a lot of people uh, and been in the shoes of a candidate as well, so should know a thing or two. Uh, welcome back, Adam. Thanks for having me again. Good You're to be back. You're very welcome. How good was my uh, origami spiel yeah, there? That, I felt, I felt like I did all right. Better than mine. I might have to steal that. I'm still learning because I'm quite new. But uh, no, very exciting. It's a really, really cool company, actually. Really great place to work. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on and it's a big drive towards that kind of renewables thing. So it's nice to feel a bit good about what you're doing as well. Yeah, no, I hear that a lot. Um, we've got a sister company that do renewable energy recruitment, and they always tell us how they're saving the world, and we're just like <laughs> we're just placing devs and data scientists to any old company, which is not true. But uh, I'll, we'll, let, we'll let them have it, and none of them listen to this as well, so I can say whatever I want about them, which is handy. Um, but yeah, no, the company looks really cool. Uh, so yeah, you've only been there for like a few weeks, right? About six weeks now. Yeah, um, really interesting, like m- massive problem that they're trying to sort of take off bits of so they've got a few targeted solutions building towards um yeah yeah this huge idea that something that you don't kind of know until you're in the industry and then you hear and you're like oh of course it all makes sense oh so yeah like there's these there's like an energy market and people trade energy um kind of like the stock market but not quite and it's really complicated because back when you just had like gas power stations right you would you would know exactly how much energy you were going to produce because you just it's how much gas you put into the power station. As more renewables come into the system and become more and more popular, well, actually, you've no idea how much energy your, your solar farm or your wind farm is going to produce. So your nice stable market predictions go mental and become really, really difficult. And it goes from having a really easy to predict long horizon to actually, I need to know quite quickly, changing forecasts. So lots of opportunity to do some cool stuff with machine learning and AI, really. And that's essentially what Origami are doing. Hoover up all that physical data from the actual assets, market data from the finances, contractual data, get it in one place and then help automate and speed up some of that decision-making. So, Yeah, it makes right. sense because, like, um, like I said, then our sister company do renewable energy uh, recruiting and they work with, like, I don't know, like the big, it's one of those things, like we work with a lot of small companies, so we think it's weird that they've only got like seven clients, but those seven clients <laughs> run the entire renewable energy, like for the entire world. But yeah, I always ask, like when I've ever had like crossover meetings with them, like, oh, what do you do with the data? And like, nobody ever has an answer, but obviously it's because no, it's really difficult and you probably need a company like yours to make sense of it. Well, and so that's the thing, you didn't, right? Because it was like, I because it was so controlled, you, you could do it all in Excel days, weeks, months, years in advance, right? And just it was all quite easy and slow. Now, actually, the kind of the renewables thing's caught up and it's become a bit of an issue, right? Really, really interesting, very recent example. Do you know the snowstorm in Texas, right? Yeah. So the, the, the peak four days of that snowstorm cost the Texas like energy producers they they basically cost them 59 billion dollars in electricity costs yeah because they didn't have the stuff in place to regulate the the physical and the financial and all that so 59 billion is is multiples of what the uk spends in a year right so that's all of a sudden it's gone there's a really there's a this is huge like very recent example of Actually, if you don't start fixing this, freak weather events like that are going to start crippling your business. There's a huge energy company that have a very small portfolio of um, like renewables assets in the energy in the Texas energy grid, which is a bit of an island thing. But they they lost something like 300 million, which is a tiny amount for them and their size. However, it shaved like three or four percent off of their global share price because it shows that they were exposed to this 
this kind of risk and actually the these systems aren't up to date and so it's a really cool like really recent problem to be able to yeah take what is essentially i say to everyone every problem is a data problem right so just taking numbers from here and putting them over there and maybe doing some predictions so it's a really acute example of of how this is going to become more and more real for people so it must be quite handy when people make such a mess of it when you work for a company that can help them be like well we could have sorted that well someone like someone at our place said uh it's quite good because now there's a $59 billion budget to go and fix this problem. <laughs> You're like, yeah, we can build some good software for that much money. You could even just half it and be like, we'll do your deal. <laughs> yeah. it'll, be, it'll be fine. $20 billion, call it a deal. Yeah. Um, also, I think I can now say I've officially made it as a podcast host with a returning guest. So it means oh, I've, I've done a good enough job to get somebody back, which is good. Although... <laughs> There was a strong rumour that it was because you didn't get a cartoon last time, so... Oh, I wasn't going to say it, but um, that's been a factor, definitely. I'll take it. Um, <laughs> so we've done... Uh, if anyone wants to go back to episode two and listen to uh, Adam's life story, um, including <laughs> including cocktail-making, data science, Cocktails. CrossFit, and insurance fraud, um, not that yep. you did it, uh, to be clear, <laughs> um, then, yeah, episode two of the show... Uh, is well worth a listen but yeah today i thought we would kind of follow on from a theme we've had before about kind of how to how to get a job in data and, and you'd wrote an article a couple of weeks back about how to stand out in 2021 as a data scientist and kind of when we post the show I'll, I'll post people a link to it and they can see it but i thought yeah i thought it'd be good to kind of jump into it a little bit further and i suppose see what your thoughts are on kind of on the article why you wrote it any feedback you've had from it and also just kind of look into it in a bit more detail yeah, cool. No, so uh, it's I've, I've done a lot of blogging in the past, but I've done a lot of very heavy technical stuff. So like guides, tutorials, how to use this toolkit, blah, blah, blah. And there's, this was a little bit of me trying, actually, could I blog about something that wasn't pure technical stuff? Is there is anyone interested in other stuff that I, I think about? Uh, so yeah, it was good fun. I've written a few now, actually. I'm, I'm kind of in the swing of trying to do one a week. So uh, but that was a good that's a good fun one because I think I've hired a lot of data scientists in my time and I've I've been through a hell of a lot of um like being hired and stuff as well. So it's interesting that certain patterns, for me at least, always kind of stand out. And I said in some of the follow-up chat around that post that it's probably very heavily tainted by my experience having worked primarily in startups of the kind of small to medium size where you might be like a sort of one person show or maybe in a very small team and maybe it's not all there yet i think if you were looking at joining a company like like amazon facebook or something like that maybe a slightly different story so there's probably people in much bigger organizations with a more established more mature team that maybe don't agree with what i've said but for me, where my experience is that kind of yeah, one person show, those kinds of skills have really stood out for me. And it actually, so that post actually started out as a I was going to do a whole thing, and the technical bit was going to be like a gentle introduction to. Actually, the the main post was all going to be about soft skills, and I wrote that bit, and I was like, this is like fifteen hundred words. I've got to shut up. I'm waffling now. So I've not written the soft, not finished the soft skills bit yet because that's much longer. But that will come. That's I mean that's probably we could probably stop the show quite soon. That soft skills probably the hard bit, <laughs> in, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. How are you? How are you finding? This is off topic already, but I knew that would happen. How are you finding <laughs> the like the discipline of writing a blog a week? Because I really like doing. I wouldn't. I don't know if I'd call it blogging actually for what I do, but I really like putting some stuff on paper. Uh, but I think if I tried to make myself do it once a week, it would either end up being not very good, or like I'd start not enjoying it. But like, are you liking the kind of like kind of sticking to it? Yeah, I feel that I do a lot better if I have like a deadline that's like a hard deadline, and it's only for me really. But I, I tend to do better with that. I found though that. As you can probably tell from this and other times people have heard me speak, I do waffle and go on and I can kind of go down a rabbit hole with stuff. Um, I found actually that it's quite easy. Sitting down to do it can be a bit like, oh, I need to do it, I need to do it. But once I'm sat down, it just flows quite quickly. And actually, I think that comes out of the fact that I spent like 
four and a bit years writing a pretty hefty thesis and <laughs> I, i'm like being yeah right like i mean 200 a4 pages of pretty heavy technical content i've done that went through four or five edits i think so like i'm almost trained to write boatloads yeah so it's yeah you, you kind of get into the the habit of it i'm quite enjoying it and i've kind of relaxed it as well like the idea that my first hundred blog posts might not be great and that's fine like i don't mind i just want to get into the rhythm and start saying stuff and the tone's good really ones. good though like i think i don't know if it's just because i quite like that style of post but like it's probably one of the reasons among many many other reasons that i would never be able to do a phd because i hate rereading and editing stuff like i quite like almost the kind of once it's done it's done like obviously there's tweaks and stuff you can do but like i'm not great at editing my own work so like a lot of my stuff especially if i'm doing it on linkedin or something that kind of more relaxed tone suits me a lot more because Mm. it's it's okay if it's not a perfectly written piece of work like it's more like does it convey the message which i think what we're going to talk about in a second like i think that it, it it reads nicely like it's not it's not like a I'm going to tell you all these things. Like it feels a lot more like relaxed when you're reading it. Yeah. And I'm kind of, yeah, trying to find my voice a little bit in that regard, like with a technical one, right? You just, this is how you do a thing and you do this thing and then you do that thing and there's a thing done. Right. Whereas for that, it's like, it's actually an opinion-y piece. So it isn't factual. So I'm trying to tread that line between this is exactly how the way the world works. And actually I just think this thing, what do you think? So that, Yeah, that kind of formal balance. I'm not quite sure where I am with it, but yeah, it works. And like, I had a lot of experience of yeah editing other people's work in my last job, like reading proposals and things like that, and going yeah. through them. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're doing something super technical, like a blog piece on, I don't know, like some new library within Python or something like that, there's not a lot of room to be creative in that kind of blog post, is there? Like, it's fairly cut and dry yeah depends it's like how you apply it is usually quite so like one of the best sort of one of the most popular talks i did was this was right at the start of trump being president so it was less of a popular topic then but i did a whole bit on natural language processing all centered around and and speech generation all centered around his tweets now that's been done to death kind of now but that was quite fun and i was there's some really dry technical stuff in there but then you're talking about quite a light-hearted stupid topic and things like that i think yeah being imaginative and creative with what you're doing is quite good i love it when you see a series it's really hard to do but i love it when you see a series of posts that are kind of building towards one thing and i always say to people like i, th- I think i say it in the post but show your work right and if someone does like a substantial project like maybe it's the capstone to their online course or maybe it's their master's project dissertation right turn that piece of work into five or six blog posts and people like me will lap it up because i love seeing the right this is where a blog post on data exploration a thousand words but then the next one links back and i can see how it all flows through i find i really like that style and it gets you in the rhythm of other people being able to consume the work and like saying i'm not just communicating to people at my level I'm communicating to people that are much smarter than me, much more technical than me, and people that aren't technical at all and don't want to know the ins and outs. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, So we'll dive into the post. So you mentioned kind of like five things that you'd probably recommend as being uh, helpful if you're on your kind of way into... I suppose it doesn't really matter if you're experienced or not. Like it's it's just a relatively helpful kind of like walkthrough. Um, The first thing you mentioned was technical skills. So it might be worth covering the basics depending on who's listening to the show. But I mean, basics wise for me, for a data scientist, stats, maths, programming, probably the best... Yeah, it's probably the best kind of like bedrock for a data scientist, right? Yeah, I think like a bit of business analysis type skill set as well. Um, that's maybe a bit less like strongly defined. I tried to write that post almost from a perspective of, of course, you've got to be good at all that stuff. So I'm not yeah. going to talk about it. Like that's a given. There's thousands of other people that are much better at writing than me that have said that before. So yes, you've got to be good at math. You've got to be good at coding. You've got to have an understanding of stats, blah, blah, blah. No, I was going to say, do you think with that, and it was just to touch on in case there's anyone either who's aspiring or doesn't really know where to start with, but like from a programming language point of view, and it's actually a conversation I've had with clients 
who've hired an established data scientist as well, when you've been interviewing people or when you're going to interview as a candidate, like, do you care like what language they're using, what language they have been using, or is it much more that kind of if you've learned Python to a really decent level, but you happen to be using R or something else, like that's that's the that's the skill, right? Yeah. So. Depends on the role. Um, for a data scientist, no. Uh, like, if you can learn one, you can learn the rest of them. As long as I'm more interested, actually, in... And it goes back to those graphs you always see of, like, 80% of your time's cleaning data and doing other stuff anyway. Most of your job isn't coding stuff in Python, right? Most of your job is doing lots of other different things. So as long as you can code and you you get how to like yeah, run your IDE and how to set up your projects and work in a team and all that, you'll learn the other stuff, right? I can teach you that if, if needs be, but it, it's not going to take you. These, these are smart people, right? They're going to pick things up quickly. I'm more interested in the way you work and the way you think, typically. Yeah. Um, and actually, one of the interesting things you mentioned on the blog is, is being like T-shaped. Yeah. Um, before this podcast, and obviously I do loads of in-depth research, but... I actually saw on LinkedIn somebody from a big tech company, and I would say who it was, but I can't remember. But they were advertising, like very openly, were advertising for a T-shaped software engineer. So I assume they must have read your post um, and changed <laughs> their entire outlook. <laughs> I definitely invented the term. It was definitely me. Yeah. Um, no, it's... But, so yeah, what, how do you kind of best explain that? So I think the whole point in your post there was like, do you, do you go down a rabbit hole of like deep specialism or or do you not essentially yeah and there was a really interesting reddit discussion actually that talked about again the big like fan companies and how you need to have a really good foundation they were saying you have to be really good at maths and stats and know your algorithms but you won't be you actually just won't be considered if you aren't a specialist so there'll be one thing that you follow the research on and stuff like that i think what i the, the point of view i'm coming from is again probably aimed at early career data scientists was it's you, you will naturally pick up like a broad range of skills you'll do a little bit of clustering you'll do a little bit of sort of predictive analytics you'll do a little bit of nlp right that's fine that's great but to stand out if you could then say well actually but i know all the latest work on natural language processing and transformers and stuff like that i know that inside out then that's going to make me look at you a bit differently if i'm if i'm recruiting for that kind of role you you've already got a, a huge step ahead of, of many other people um it takes a while to find out a which thing you want to specialize in because not like you might not find some stuff as interesting or as fun and then actually just to acquire and gather the skills but yeah i would definitely say be curious explore everything in most cases but pick one thing that you're going to kind of make a strength that you can really shine on because it allows you to manipulate the interview as well. And I'm, I talk about this quite a lot um, to people that you can see certain things to happen so that you get asked about a type of question. So if you're, if you've got a strength, you you try and point the interview that way. And I think I go on later to talk about projects and portfolios and that if you've got like a really Say, again, it's NLP's your strength. If you've got two or three really good projects on there and nothing else, I'm probably going to ask you about those projects. So if actually something else is your strength, then you've, you've kind of lost the opportunity to really show off at the interview stage. Now, I would say that this, again, probably doesn't apply if you're trying to get a research role at, like, DeepMind or something. They, they probably want you to do one thing better than everyone else in the world, and there's, there'll be other organisations where that's the case. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I suppose putting your kind of hiring manager hat on as well, it's probably not so applicable for you, actually, because you've got a broad knowledge. But we've definitely had clients in the past where they're like, we need someone with amazing NLP skills, amazing computer vision skills, amazing like predictive analytics skills, all in one person. And it's probably impossible to be amazing at all of that. Yeah, look, I, I say to look, I've I've done one computer vision project ever, right? I wouldn't put it on my CV and I, I would openly say that. And this again goes to the a point I make about talk about your weaknesses. I think it builds trust. If someone says, oh, look, we've got all these computer vision projects, I'll be just like, right, you will find better people than me. That is not what I know. I, I'm sure I could learn it. I've I've played with it. It's really interesting. It's not my thing. But I know guys that <laughs> whose thing it is. I think 
you can tell from job adverts, like you said, you can look at those adverts and you see, okay, you're going to get that kind of jack of all trades, master and none. Now, I would say that in data science, actually being a jack of all trades can be a really good, like a, being a generalist actually can be a really good place to be. Um, just there are a lot of us like generalists. Having that extra specialism, that extra strength, again, it's about just that little bit of an advantage that's going to make you stand out and peak interest. Yeah, no, I think so. And we're going to get on to it, and it might actually be even the next bit, because you mentioned kind of software engineering principles, but maybe not exactly. But there's a, there's a guy I'm working with just now, and I've um, helped him with a few roles in the last few years, and you probably call him like a kind of generalist data scientist a couple of years ago, and then he did a bit of NLP work and did a bit of computer vision work. But now where he's landed, he's just an incredible like machine learning engineer. So like he was a data scientist, 100%. That was what he did. And then where he ended up, he's helped build this product and he just loved the engineering side of it. So he's almost ended up being a specialist in that. And we'll get onto this later on, actually, but it's arguably a, one of the best things to be specialised in just now because it's so in demand. Yeah, and I think actually, yeah, my whole sort of penchant for software engineering, that's why I've ended up head of machine learning engineering at Origami. That's, um, it's definitely the kind of the way the industry's going, I think, because the big companies are doing a lot to democratize some of this AI stuff as well. Some of the auto AI stuff, it's not well loved, but it does the job for most people. Actually, being able to build production ready stuff that's the big gap in the industry at the moment i think yeah. there was a thing on i think it was the stack overflow survey job survey talks about how there's been a huge downturn actually in data science roles and data engineers have become much more in demand and that is really true to what i've seen in my time as a consultant and just in working with many organizations everyone goes oh we want an ai we want to do machine learning and then you show up and they've got a few excel spreadsheets and stuff written on napkins and you're like right you're quite a way off yeah, you're not ready for this yet um no i i mean we don't have the same resources as stack overflow but i'd be pretty confident we'd have very similar results in terms of like the decline in data science and the uptick in either kind of like machine learning engineers or data engineers. I think that's where it starts to get a little bit woolly. Like I saw yeah. a rant on Facebook, on Facebook on LinkedIn from someone at Facebook that said, you can't ask for a data engineer, like a machine learning engineer, or DevOps engineer to all be the same job. Um, it was a bit more arsey than that. And it's, <laughs> and it's easy for her to say because she works at Facebook. Like, it's easy to have separate departments for everything. But uh, yeah, no, so you mentioned kind of software engineering principles. And I think any kind of aspiring data scientist, I think your whole point was like, you don't have to be like an unbelievable software engineer, but understanding what they do. And like, I've even spoken to clients just about like coding standards and like being able to reproduce what you've done elsewhere in the business. Like that stuff's actually really important now. My old, uh, well, my mentor, he talked about it, how it's craft actually software engineering is a craft and there is a real difference when you speak to like true like to their core software engineers some of them absolutely love it and like the coding is a very small part of that like be the the design the documentation like all that stuff's super important and i will i will not under any circumstances admit to being a good software engineer right i'm not i just i'm aware of the some of the stuff that that makes it much easier to deploy things and, and makes it a, a much smoother transition. Luckily, I've got lots of very good software engineers to tell me to shut up when I make mistakes and start <laughs> waffling rubbish. So I think if you are aware of it, it just shows that you're taking it a little bit more seriously. To me, that's the kind of signal. If I'm hiring a data scientist and they talk about something like code complete, they talk about code coverage or unit testing and things like that, that'll perk my ears because it's not another person telling me about the latest machine learning toolbox or drawing deep learning diagrams they're saying okay i understand i'll take that as a given but you're thinking about the reusability and portability of your code and and the kind of how it maintains and things like that yeah no i think it makes sense and actually one of the guys that have been on the show before um a company called fuzzy labs in manchester they came from like one was a devops consultant um and one was a software engineer and they ended up working on kind of data projects and have now set up what I don't know if they would call it a data science consultancy or not, but essentially, um, but because of their backgrounds, they're coming at it from a slightly different angle than maybe like some of the other consultancies. So some of the big, big names 
are just trying to get into data science, right? And then some of the data science consultancies don't have the software engineering capability. So although they're maybe a little bit smaller, I think they'll probably do really well because mm-hmm. they've got really solid like foundation um, and they're trying to run that machine learning project like they would a software project. I've, do you know what? I've seen that story played out elsewhere, actually, and that tends to be more successful than trying to sell people exploratory, fuzzy, or no no kind of concrete deliverable data science projects. Oh, you might get a win. Whereas like a deliverable, the repeatability, that, that that's a bit more real for people and it's actually what people need. Yeah, I've still got some people that I speak to and they'll mention certain company names that I won't mention on here. But they, they'll ask me like, do you know what they do? Because like they seem to talk a lot about data science. They get a lot of money. They're in the press quite a lot. But like, does anyone know what they do? And like, most of the time, you don't really know what they do. <laughs> yeah. So it's maybe just very good marketing. I don't know. But yeah, so after you mentioned software engineering, you kind of, I'm going to add lib this a little bit, but it's essentially kind of like getting shit into production, right? So yeah. getting getting your work kind of live, essentially. Um, some people, and you probably, well, you are in a much better uh, position than me to talk about this, but some people kind of argue that it's maybe not the job of a data scientist to do this. Like, would you agree with that? So, um, depends on the size of the team you're in, right? If you're the only data scientist at a really lean startup that needs a production ready ML model, who else is going to do it? (laughs) So, whereas if you're in a bigger team and it's that, I hate the term data scientist, right? It's like the worst job role sort of, because Lots of other job titles have kind of just been changed into it, and now yeah. we're seeing lot, now we're seeing it get changed into new ones like machine learning engineer, right? So that is a machine learning engineer's job. That that's what they should be doing. And I always joke that, yeah, data scientists can do anything slower and more expensively than everyone else, but they can do anything, um, and that's typically because you, that's how you're treated as a data scientist. You're brought in and you're, you're expected to be a software engineer, a BI developer, a DBA, yeah, a machining engineer, and that can be really painful. And I've, I've actually, my, my, last, my blog post that went out today talks about that a little bit as well. That can be really painful because you really do want to just do the ML kind of stuff, the ML development. Having an, For me, having an awareness of that shows you're not naive in thinking that your only job is to come along and play around with models and, and fire really ugly looking Jupyter notebooks at me. You're going to be conscious that I, yeah, okay, this actually needs to be used. And there's, there's more stuff down the chain than just sort of the infinite exploration stage, but whose job is it really depends on where you are. I think also, and again, going back to that guy that I mentioned earlier, he's ended up loving being a machine learning engineer, but maybe if the company joined, which was a startup, had loads of people doing that, he might have got siloed into just being the kind of ML model builder. So like, I suppose it depends what you want. Like if you join a startup, yeah. you should have an expectation to roll your sleeves up and like, you'll be a data scientist one day and then like, I don't know, like a business analyst the next, like speaking to the customer and trying to explain what the hell's going on. Um, yeah. So I suppose that's where some of that will come in. Also, interestingly, um, a client in Manchester said to me once that when he's hiring someone, he'd he'd much rather ask someone directly like have you got something into production that worked than the person that's building something that's like 98.9 percent effective but they've never actually deployed it because it's not quite perfect yeah and it kind of shows that awareness that like there needs to be an end goal right like it needs to it needs to do something at the end of the day yeah and that's it because yeah ultimately the you're there to empower decision makers, right? Whoever that decision maker is, but I can guarantee you that a lot of those decision makers won't be technical. They'll be, or they won't be technical in the same regard that you are. They might not be able to code, but you might say you're dealing with a finance director, as the example I always use. They're very technical, but in Excel, and maybe they they don't want to go away and learn SQL or learn how to run shell scripts and things like that. They're not interested in that. They're busy enough. So how do you get your value in their hands? And if you're not aware that actually, yeah, who's going to do that? How does it work? I think you can be a little bit naive in the, okay, I built the model and it's really, really like accurate and blah, blah, blah. But actually it's really difficult to run and no one's going to maintain it. Because the other thing I always talk to people in every team I've had, I say, look, I don't expect you're going to be here for a long time. I don't, I think the days of having a 15 year one 
company career is over, really. Yeah. I expect, I say to people, look, five years' time, you probably won't work here, right? So I want to help you move on to the next thing. But also, I don't want all your stuff to break when you leave, or I don't want us to have to throw it all out because it only worked the way, like, when you were around. Yeah. So you've got to think about the future as well. Um, I would say to people, make it idiot-proof, because I'm an idiot, so make it idiot-proof so I can use it, and then we're good. It's just, yeah, yeah, I'm not saying you're an idiot, but it's good advice. Um, <laughs> but no, it does make sense. And I think if anyone who's going for interviews as a data scientist, like the big thing that always comes up when I speak to people, and quite often as well, they're not, they're, I don't know, people aren't always lucky that they get to speak to someone like you that's done business, they've done data, like they've been hands-on. Like sometimes you are thrown into an interview with the CTO and the CFO. Like they don't really care that you've done some amazing like I don't know I was going to try and sound really clever and pull something up there but I'll just sound stupid so um no like if you, <laughs> if you if you go like really like really deep on like some mad statistics thing or like mm-hmm. some something you did with other data scientists that was like really cool and innovative like if you're meeting a chief finance officer a CTO and a marketing person like if you're interviewed with those types of people you want to get to the point of like what happened and, yeah. like, and, and if you weren't there what would have happened like the, would the company have taken six months longer to get to that point like did you save them 50 grand like even if you saved them a couple of grand like it's worth shouting about because that's the whole point yeah so I, I used to always say back in the consulting days and I, I whenever I've done talks around this kind of stuff I would say try and turn everything you do back into either seconds or pounds. And if you can turn the seconds into pounds, that's better. No <laughs> one cares, right? In a board, in a, like a company-wide all hands, you've, devo- you've deployed a new model. No one cares how accurate it is, really. Like deep down, if you've got half a percent more accuracy. But if you can say that is six grand a month, people's ears are going to perk up and think, oh, wait a minute, I can see why this is useful and the way this works out. And it's about, yeah, relate it back to the universal language of of money and budgets and things like that. That would typically work. Well, it's kind of like um, the guys, we had Andy McMahon, who was at Agreco at the time on the show. And like, you would never think of a company that rents diesel power generators to like the Olympics in small countries would really need a data, like a really good data team. But then when you you have him on the show and he says like, yeah, we could predict when two million pound machine might break and it saves the company loads of money time and hassle sending out an engineer then you're like all right of course that's why you have a data scientist they're doing brilliant stuff with data they've got a cracking data team at agreco yeah it's it's one of those ones where like maybe people who are listening always think of like i don't know facebook like google let's go work at these tech companies quite often the people with the problems like aren't tech companies yeah, and then they're doing other stuff, and they have, they collect loads of data, and they don't know what to do with it. Like that, that's the kind of company I'd probably want to work for, rather than necessarily like a huge technical like behemoth. Yeah, companies like um, I think Ocado's one that surprises people. Ocado's got a really strong data team, and they do some really cool stuff. Because and then you think about, it, and then you start to unravel that, and you're like, well, of course they do. Yeah, they're, they're yeah, just loads of customer data like all over the place. Yeah. It's even just like the company that does. Um, the flowers through the letterbox i think is it called bloom, bloom and wild bloom yeah. and wild um they've got some really good like insight and it's not always data scientists but, like insight data type people and like again it's all that thing about like how can they get more customers like how can they improve marketing like if you're a company that's spending hundreds of millions on marketing a year which some of these companies do then like if you can optimize that a little bit then like happy days and it's the i think it's the difference as well but between like just doing it because you feel there's a need to do it and it actually being your differentiator so for like a smaller company or a newer company actually if you do it really well it can be the thing that makes you super competitive or makes you the number one in your field because you're going to do it leaner or slightly differently you're going to understand your customers better and things like that yeah no 100 percent you mentioned this already, but it's probably worth going back into. So like having something to show like your future employer, people sometimes get a bit weird about this and it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts that like, it's maybe unfair to ask people to have like passion project, hobby project outside of their day job. But 
I suppose there's two parts to it, but like something like a GitHub link or, um, like you said in the article, you don't need to do it, but it's worth knowing that if you do have a GitHub or a blog post around something you've done and your hiring manager is wired like you are, then you'll yeah. read it. So it does help. Yeah, and so maybe I'm weird, but if I see a CV with a GitHub link at the top, 90% of the time, I'll maybe not read the rest of the CV and I'll, I'll, if I've allocated maybe two minutes per CV because I've got hundreds of them, I'll probably spend half an hour on that one because I'll be in the GitHub playing around with stuff, looking at stuff. And even if it's coursework, right, that I know you had the answers to and you know, you, I know that there was, it was nicely laid out, even that is interesting because I can see the kinds of things that you're learning. And then when I get you to interview, I can ask you about it. Why did you do that? What was that? Blah, blah, blah. It makes it easy for me to frame my questions to really dig into your understanding. You don't have to do it, but I, don't be afraid, right? And It doesn't have to be perfect. And don't like wait till you've put all the unit tests in and documentation through the nose. Like, just get something up there and, and talk honestly and openly about where you are. Because for people like me, you're going to then stand out. Because I get maybe five to 10 emails a day from recruiters. I'm working with a really good candidate who's got seven plus years in this and they're an excellent at this and they've, they've been the CTO at all these companies. I get those all day, every day, right? So it doesn't mean not, anything not, to me. Not from us, I must add. No, no, not everyone from you yet. But I get I get these emails all the time about these candidates that sound too good to be true. And yeah. This is fine. They probably are. They're probably great. But if I see a GitHub link, it just it's a completely different experience for me. It feels more real and I can really get into it. Yeah, engage for myself where they are i think it makes sense and like if you've got the time to put something up and even because you can have notes before you get into projects right so like you can have like a little <laughs> readme file and say like this is just a little hack i did on a project i found interesting like you can set the scene a little bit for people so like it doesn't need to be this like perfect thing and it does show something um i would agree with that for sure um and one of the things that um andrew jones and i talked about as well is like a good angle to look at in interviews is like what you would do differently so like Mm -hmm. you've had a few really interesting jobs as a data scientist and i'm sure there's loads of things now that what you've learned you would probably implement something slightly differently in those jobs so like it's been able to look back at that and it's a little bit like show your weaknesses it's like show a bit of like i don't know maybe not humility that's maybe the wrong word but like a, a bit of awareness that like you probably could have done something better or differently if you had longer more money a bigger team like how would you have how would you have edited it essentially? Yeah, and I think I say this in that article. I, like I, I always in every interview I say I'm not good at that. I'm not good at this. You'll find better if you're looking for this thing or this kind of person. You'll find someone better than me at that. And I, I usually like do that quite early in an interview, and I think it puts your hiring managers at ease because then when I start saying if what you're looking for is this, then actually you'll you'll be hard pressed to find someone that's better suited to that or more passionate about that kind of thing. And I think it means that it's not all bluster and sort of talking yourself up and there's a bit of trust in there and things like that. Um, And I've had people do it to me and you think, okay, that's great. And it's quite fun to like ask if someone says, I really struggle with deep learning. You go, okay, let's talk about deep learning then. Cause I want to know, okay, why do you struggle with it? Is it because you've just never looked at it? Is it because actually the maths is really difficult for you or or what? Because that's going to help me put you, yeah, in the right kind of place. I think, look, be, there's, not, there's nothing worse than faking your way into a job, I don't think, as well, especially these kinds of roles, because you can you can hide in a data science role. So, yeah, you'll get the, the job title, you'll get the money, you'll have a really probably quite difficult time that's not that fulfilling, and you'll probably sour that company's idea or understand if it's a small enough company idea or understanding of what can be achieved because a lot of a lot of small companies have had their hands burned with with bringing in data teams that haven't really delivered yeah i actually normally see the other way around where companies probably burn like phd share uni like data scientists where there's not actually enough data to do which is yep. kind of the same thing on the other way around because you could probably yeah, find yeah. that you can find that out at interview stage if you ask the right questions um it's probably quite a hard line to kind of cross because you're saying about like showing weaknesses and like what you might not be good at and then coupling that with what you are good at because it's very kind of uk to not talk yourself up so it's probably like you need to have quite a fine line of like being admit what you're not good at but like absolutely go to town on the stuff you're like passionate about 
Well, that's it. Look, you would say you interviews an hour. You've got 60 minutes, right? You don't want to spend 25 of those minutes talking about something that actually you're just kind of fudging because it's not your strength. If yeah. we get into the interview and I start asking you about NLP and that's not your strength and you go, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, and you're trying to basically fake it, when actually you could have spent that 25 minutes going, no, 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 ignore that, I hate that, I really like this thing instead. I'm like, all right, fine, let's talk about that. And you'll get to show off where you're strong. Yeah, yeah, that's probably the best advice there. It's like, don't try and, and I, I mean, everyone's guilty of this. Like, I've definitely done it on like in client meetings and at events and stuff where like you get asked a question and you're like, ah, and you just like waffle for five minutes and hope for the best. I mean, I've done 50 podcasts now where I've essentially waffled <laughs> for an hour. So, um it works for some people just don't just don't do what i do it's probably worth adding as well your article was kind of it was kind of skewed for like data scientists but to be honest like anyone working in data is it's extremely applicable so if you are a data engineer and kind of ml engineer you're looking at data ops like whatever like the the advice is very much applicable to those as well and you put an article out about that again we'll post the links but about kind of like using docker in the data science process right and like Mm -hmm. just again it's probably worth touching on from your point of view as well like that kind of machine learning operations like ml ops type work is definitely kind of gathering speed so if you can show a bit of that or something you did at your current company or whatever you'd probably stand out as well i would have thought yeah that's that's kind of the thing about putting it into the production like i've got books on kubernetes and docker sat right here with me right and, and I, I, don't, I don't know them cover to cover do you know what i mean i don't i probably know the first like the stuff i could probably get through the first three or four chapters that's all i need to know because i happen to have really good devops guys that work with me as well but it's knowing enough to bridge that gap and understand the the difficulty at the other end and and to to kind of nudge the project along i think it's really powerful and you might find that you absolutely love that stuff and actually scrap data science i want to become an ml engineer or i want to work in ml ops because that that really does it for me like that's the thing i want to do so it's good to have again it's broad kind of exposure to lots of stuff but pick a thing and it's kind of how software engineers went as well right so like back in like a few years back you were a software engineer but that meant so many different things to different people like maybe you were doing like the kind of integration layer maybe you were like the front end absolute whiz like maybe the back end and it morphed into more of a devops role and that's just kind of what happens in technology so like it makes sense that data science is going that way Mm -hmm. um and it's really interesting you mentioned that everyone just changed their job title to data science because like anyone that was like uh like an actuarial scientist like 15 years ago have now all changed their titles to like senior data scientist like when they were at the bank and like fair enough because they were doing a lot of like relevant work but it's definitely become a bit bit too much of a catch-all wasn't it well it's funny you do see people who have like yeah 10 plus years as a data scientist on their linkedin and always makes me think hmm I'm dubious of that because it's not been around that long the title and not many people even when i started about what was it six seven years ago there weren't that many people doing it um, yeah the big th- the big catalyst for us was we started working with a company in manchester in 2015 or 2016 maybe 2016 i think um and they said can you help us find some data scientists and me and my director who were at the meeting were like yeah no bother <laughs> i've never recruited for data scientists in my life but i'd recruited a lot of data people but like the term data scientist and then from there there was like a year and a half of just everybody wanted a data scientist and it's kind of coming not coming full circle that's not fair but like it's a lot more defined now yeah well i was i was lucky in that i got in before you could do a degree in it yeah and it was like shortly after i started doing it then you started you could do a master's i think you can do undergrads in it now um i've worked with a phd data science like he did a phd in data science that that was again a completely different skill set really into like the details of a certain few things in the field um so yeah like when i started you couldn't do courses in it you had to there was only really a few things on stuff like coursera and that that was it i suppose it's more defined now well that's probably why it became such like a i don't know like again that kind of catch-all thing is because if you'd worked in like physics math stats research like you were ingesting huge amounts of data and turning it into something so you could technically be a data scientist but now it's kind of and again you don't need to do the whole phd thing either like we've spoke about that before like it's not the you don't have to go down that route but having an appreciation of all these things makes a lot of sense um and again like 
data engineering and AI kind of or machine learning engineer like those titles are becoming more and more prominent so um, I'm glad you brought that up as well because it's definitely something we've seen seen a yeah. lot of what is uh, what is the plan for the next blog post you posted one today on why data scientists leave startups right yeah just why why data scientists quit their jobs and it was a bit of a kind of yeah experiences I've heard of and some that I've kind of felt about when you go into a place and it's maybe not what you expect or you've got to deal with politics. I talk about a fair bit or being in a team that's isolated, stuff like that. The, I think it's that probably again aimed at really early career people that have this dream. There's a lot of people that are really driven to become a data scientist, right? So they're like, oh, I really want to become one. So they go away and they invest money and time and effort into doing these courses it's painful for them to come out the other side and then be landed in like a place where it's all office politics and it's it's actually none of the infrastructure's there. Actually, no one at the senior level of the company cares. So everything you do doesn't really matter. That's that's not nice. And no, that's hard. yeah, again, that Stack Overflow survey, um, 20% of data scientists, 20.5% are were currently looking for another job. And that was the second highest of all the job titles that answered the survey, second was, only to academics. I was going to say what's top, but that makes sense. And do you think, so last two questions, I've just came off the top of my head. Do you think for a data scientist to be successful and maybe a bigger team as maybe more of an example, but like they, they need to be integrated with software engineers, DevOps, project management, like, like they need to be part of the team, not just this like separate division where they do some data stuff and it all gets everyone else eventually. So interesting, you've said that actually. I'm um, currently in the throes of sort of fleshing out and learning the whole data mesh thing. So this is like a maybe a few years old now, two or three years old. This idea of moving away from a big centralized um, like data repository like a data warehouse or a data lake and then having like a hub and spoke kind of model and moving more towards domain driven um sort of development for data treating data as a product so that actually is like we we do that origami and like end to end like from ingestion all the way to the consumption by the customer that is one product and we've got product owners in there we've got data scientists engineers software engineers everything and it's a really good approach i i'm really enjoying it because you haven't got to you've not got that like disconnect of we've done a thing we show the thing to the the user and the user makes some comments and we go back and do a change that isn't maybe quite right and we're all in it together it's all kind of mixed in uh it's the first time i've experienced it like that and i'm, I'm f- actually thinking it's a much better way to be building these kinds of products because i find that you can be very successful in data science if you know just enough, but you can bridge the gap between the non-technical people and doing the communication. And I've said before, I think that's one of the reasons I was reasonably successful was that I spent a lot of time learning how to like communicate with business stakeholders and do stakeholder management and like a business analysis type stuff because a lot of your data science peers are very, very technical, super clever people, don't want to don't care, don't want to do politics, not interested. I know guys that are much smarter than me that have just said, I'm not interested in doing that whatsoever. Shut me in a cupboard with hard problems to solve and I'll do that. And that's great because if maybe you're not the best at maths, you're not the best at stats, there's the space in that realm. There's like a different flavor of data scientist you could be. Yeah, I think so. There's lots of people I work with now that have worked their way up to kind of head of level and they're all kind of slowly creeping back down like even just one level because they were like i just love coding whereas there's other people who are like yeah no it's good and i love the technical aspect to it but i much prefer like bridging that gap like you said so there's definitely room for both but i suppose mm-hmm. only if only if companies can kind of see that um yeah, and, and the management things like management people management's hard man it's not it's not oh it's a bollock yeah, it's not fun all the time. Like, in fact, it's not fun most of the time. But, but if you if you do well at it, you can get more done because you can kind of just leech all of the uh, glory off of your team. So that's a good point. But it's, uh, I think it's a, another topic for another day. But it's something that I've seen come up more and more. But like, there needs to be more like defined 
like routes for this is just in technology in general but like just when you when you get to the top of your game you don't need to become a manager but I think in technology and even in the job that I do like it gets to a point where you do well enough that it's like yeah you should have a team now and like there should definitely be more of a two-pronged approach like do you want to be like the highest paid most respected but still very hands-on data scientist or software engineer or do you want to go down that managerial route and and both are okay like there's not mm-hmm. like a, there's not a pressure either way so we're probably still not quite there with most companies i don't think i think that's that's true of most tech yeah not even just like software either that's uh, I've, I've working way back at, when i worked at Tellers, a very sort of hands-on physical engineering um environment they had they so they had what they called the managerial or the expert route and you could go up to the same you could go up to all but one level i think like basically the ceo was obviously manager level but you could yeah. go up to the level below ceo as a technical like root person but i think the what was true i'm not sure if it's true there but generally i think it's much more difficult actually to to stand out and to compete and and progress down that ever more technical route simply because most of those really good people don't want to be managers so there's yeah. the, the, the competition to do the management side of thing is the less sort of exciting maybe i don't know i don't know you just you just gotta be a bit mental to want to like stop so if you're if you're technical it's a bit mental to just give all that up to yeah just sit in a board meeting all day um, back to my meetings oh Spats about Teams meetings just now as well, where you're just like so painful. I can't look at myself anymore, so I'm going to hide it and just like yeah. just, just hope for the best. So um, a lot of my friends down south are like, "Oh, do you want to do like meet up with we'll a Teams thing?" Blah blah blah. I'm like, "Absolutely not, no." I'm yeah, on we did, Teams calls all week, every week. We did loads at the start, and now it's like somebody mentioned <laughs> on like new lockdown. They were like, "Oh, well, we just try and do another pub quiz," and we were like, "No, sorry, mate." <laughs> not not a chance like I sit on my computer all day at this chair like if I can get outside or like sit in front of a different screen then I'll be yeah. I'll be I'll be happier um, well thank you so much for coming back on I really appreciate it um, thanks for having me look forward to the next blog we'll, we'll share the, the link to it and then hopefully in the not too distant future we can we can get a pint but who knows yeah that'd be good really good